Thank you, Brian, for sharing what God has laid on your heart. It was very convicting. <laughs> and what's crazy is it very much so links to what we're talking about today, and we didn't talk about that. It's almost like there's this common spirit that unites us, like God is real or something. It's crazy. And he's active, and he's alive, and he's moving. It's awesome. Um, but the thing I was thinking about that was, isn't that so true? It can be a words thing. It can be a thought thing. But unless it's an action thing, it doesn't make any sense. Because think about it. The, 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 the Jews of the day when Jesus, I mean, Friday, he's coming into Jerusalem. They put him, you know, they're laying palm fronds down for him, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Here comes the King of Kings. You know, we want to we raise him up as the king. He's awesome. We, two days later, they're crucifying him, saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because thoughts and words are fickle, aren't they? They change. And unless we have a faith that's put into action, it'll never be solid. And it'll be going with the crowds and everything else. Sorry, that's a little... I, I, I just got to get down from my soapbox here. But I, I, just, I just really liked what you had to say. And I love that analogy. So... Because I'm in the, in the, in the um, circle of people where we get together and we write, we write sermons about cleaning the room. <laughs> right? But am I going to clean it? That's, anyway. All right. Um, last week we started a, a, a new sermon series. I had a privilege to start that with you. Super excited about it. And it's, it's called Fearless. And it's going through the book of Joshua. And I'll tell you, there is just so much good good stuff that what it is is it's it's that faith being played out it's the idea of god comes along and god never speaks without an action being played into that through us that he speaks to and so what we see in the book of joshua is him coming and leading his people and saying go do this and and they do it and it's awesome and so what, what I love is we've been looking at this concept as they were living fearlessly. How did they do it with the insurmountable obstacles before them, with the, with the really tough stuff that they had in their day? How do we, in our day today, be fearless? How, how do we live in that, in that way? And, and one of the main or the main theme that we talked about in the introduction of the series was that fearless living can only be found in the person and plan of God. See, if we want to be fearless, we can't put our trust in anything but the person of God because everything else will fail. And the same thing goes with the plan. If it's not his plan, then it's futile. If it's not his plan, then it will falter, it will fail, it will fall. And so fearless living really starts at that cornerstone of trust in Jesus Christ and following the, the plan of the Heavenly Father. And so that's what we talked about last week. And, and really, in just looking at the fear that threatens us in relationships, situations, uncertainties, disasters, all of these things that can happen. And, and one of the things that we talked about was like the fact that King David, I mean, he knew fear. We, talked, we, we referenced Psalm 20, 23. But David knew what it was to face the crucible of fear and go through crisis as he pens the, the, the psalm where he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of crisis, <laughs> through the shadow of death, your rod and your staff guide and protect me, right? Both the rod and the staff were tools of the shepherd to keep the sheep close to the shepherd and guide them and direct them in the plan of the shepherd. David got it. And you talk about a guy that went through fear, daily fear of dying, 
Fear of his, of his own kids at, at one point, Absalom, who went against him and betrayed him. And then he's got to lead, you know, he, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even want to lead the army against his own son because he's like, I don't want to kill my son. I mean, it's crazy stuff that he went through, but he continued to trust in the person of God and the plan of God. So I'm so excited about Joshua chapter 2 today and what we're going to look at. And so um, I'm really, what I really would love to see um, is, again, how that fits with what, you know, what Brian talked about, which is really good. But uh, we see his people choose his plan and his person again as they l- learn to live fearless. So if you could stand with me, I want to read out of jo- uh, Joshua chapter 2. And that main take-home truth that we have for today is simple. Fearless living means that we live out our faith regardless of the consequences. We live out our faith. We clean the room, so to speak. We don't just talk about it. We don't just read about it. We do it. So Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, because he had no parents. I have to be very careful how I read this next word. Secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Sorry. It's in the Bible. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of the prostitute named Rahab Rahab, and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So she said, Yes, uh, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gates, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You, you might catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Now, verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan when you completely destroyed Whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven, above and on earth below. Okay, you may be seated. There's a lot going on here, so I want to quickly start to outline some of these things. But we need to remember what happened before, and so I'm going to give you a quick quick setup. In in Joshua chapter 1, we have Moses dying... And, and Joshua takes the mantle of leadership and, and, and very much so says, look, the same God that led Moses is the same God that's leading you today because there's no such thing as a second generation faith. Let me just say that again. There's no such thing as a second generation faith. There is only first generation. You might be a kid in a Christian family. Good. You feel the blessing of that, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You might have godly grandparents. You might have, have that uh, a spouse that you've linked your faith to, but there's no such thing as a second generation or removed faith. It's all first generation. And God was the God of Abraham, but also the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Joseph and the God... You see, every generation we see this and he's the God of me and he's the God of you. And so what we see in, in, in Joshua chapter 1 is this, is this passing of the, look, I'm, I was here with him, but I'm also here now with you. And what's interesting is, 
And, and, and they've come from a whole generation that said, we trust God, but we don't really trust God. And they grumbled and they complained, and that generation died out in 40 years of wandering in the desert. So you have this new generation that's saying, okay, we saw what the old generation did, and we don't want to be that way. We want to do it right. We want to live fearless. We don't want to be living by fear. We want to live through the fear, trusting in the man, trusting in God, trusting in his plan. And so what's interesting is they get through this wandering, and they get to the place where they're, they're out in this valley, and Joshua says, in, in, in Joshua chapter 1, God commanded him to sit and wait for three days. It's like all this wandering. You can imagine 40 years, right? Wandering in the desert. You talk about a long extended period of time of wandering. Some of you have been lost in L.A., right? You get off the freeway and you're like, is there ever an entrance to get back on? And you, you know what I mean? And it seems like forever. You know what I mean? Imagine 40 years of wandering. Yeah, I could show you a map. It's not that far from where they went to where they were going. And, and, and here they are. And God says, now wait. Why? <laughs> why? I mean, why didn't God just go, okay, go in and boom. No, he made them wait. It's like he has a special purpose in waiting. The first point I want to make is simple. Fearless living comes as we wait upon God and learn patience. Fearless living comes as we wait upon God and learn patience. The truth is that God uses instances in our life to teach us fearless living and learn patience. See, maybe you can identify with the Israelites. They waited, we wait. I mean, God, I have been praying that I get that job or I get that promotion for months now, which seems like an eternity. Why the wait? Lord, I have been praying for my lost child who's struggling and I see them failing and I see them falling and I see them hurting and I'm just like, why the wait? Lord, my health is doing this or that. Why the wait? I mean, we can go through a whole litany of things that we are told to wait in. And and it, and it causes us to go, why? And I'm very much so, how many of the people, as they came, were like, why are we waiting? It's right there. Let's do this. But the truth is, real trust comes through waiting patiently on the Lord. The greatest test to your faith will be time. The greatest test to your faith will be time. Fear always happens in the waiting room. I mean, come on, really? Fear always happens in the waiting room. You guys get what I'm saying here. In the between times, in the meantime, in the waiting room, that's where fear builds. It's the unknown. It's the waiting. It's the sitting. It's the, I, I just need to go do something. Elijah ran from Ahab and Jezebel and hid all over Judah waiting for the Lord to act. David waited years in the wilderness, living in caves with the outcasts, running from Saul who was trying to kill him, waiting... Jeremiah, all he wanted to do, Jeremiah, I mean, he wrote the book of Lamentations, which means weeping, by the way. I mean, you write a book called Weeping, you got a cruddy life, right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the guy was not a happy-go-lucky guy. And it's interesting, because you look at Jeremiah, and he's like, all I want to do is get married and have a family. And God's like, nope, you're going to wait on me. And you're going to speak to a people, oh, by the way, they won't hear you, they won't listen. And no matter what you say, it's not going to happen anyway. Imagine that. But it's, 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 it's insane. Waiting on the Lord. And he, had to, he was thrown into a cistern full of mud down in, I mean, just stuck in. I mean, imagine. A, a, a muddy, nasty cistern waited for probably what seemed like an eternity. 
The greatest test to your faith will be time. The disciples, why did Jesus wait three days to be raised again? It's what's interesting is the disciples go back to work. <laughs> Instead of waiting, what do they do? Well, I guess it's all over. Let's go back to fishing. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Waiting forces us to answer a simple question. And I want you to see this here. Please, if you're taking notes, follow along here. The simple question that waiting forces us to see is, am I following God or the gifts? See, when we're in the waiting room, it it forces us to look and, and, and look at the simple fact of, is it really about the giver or the gifts? Is it about the provision or the provider? The Israelites all grumbled as soon as things got a little tough as Moses was leading them. Many people following Jesus as he started, because he was giving out free food. I mean, he was healing people. Things were happening like crazy. And then he started talking about actually following him. Let's not talk about cleaning the room. Let's do it. And people started, well, that's tough. I'm out of here. Because they wanted the gifts. And he even turned to his own disciples and said, hey, how about you? Are you guys going to leave me too? Are you guys here just for the gifts? Or are you here for the giver? I love what they said. I mean, they they basically said, look, you've got the words of life. You're the giver. The gifts are great, but we want the giver. The truth is, God does not exist to fulfill our needs and desires. And that's a hard thing for me to say. It's a hard thing for me to rely on. That's a hard truth and a hard fact that we all need to see. But let me say it again. The truth is, God does not exist to fulfill our needs and our desires. We exist to glorify Him. (laughs) We exist to glorify Him. Too many people get stuck in that game of seeking after their own happiness. I will get what I want and my desire and I will get what I need and I will, I will focus on this. And Jesus very simply addresses this when he says, if you seek your own life, you'll lose it. If you seek to fulfill your own desires, if you seek happiness, if you seek this, then you will lose it. But if you seek me, if you die for me, if you put me first, then you'll get it. Right? He says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Not what you want, but what God wants. And then the adverse of that is you get all the other stuff. It's crazy. Like God fulfills your desires and your needs that you didn't even know you had as you seek Him. It's like the marriage that seeks the Lord. Right? I always use this analogy. You've got two people just like this. You can almost make a little pyramid, but you have God at the center. As they go towards God, what are they doing? They're going towards each other. A godly marriage, seeking God, seeking first His kingdom, putting Jesus first, dying to themselves, will always get back to the desire of what they want the most. It's just the way it is. But we have to look at that. Is it about the giver? Or is it about His gifts? What is the waiting room that you're in right now? Are you trusting and waiting upon God as he helps you learn patience? Or are you grumbling and ready to give up on the only one who can bring you the desire of your heart? Fearless living comes as we wait upon God and learn patience. Now, secondly, fearless living means we live out God's redemptive plan to all people. Now, what's interesting here is who the spies are directed to. You know, they went and entered the house of a prostitute. Not 
the person you would normally see in the Bible, or at least you'd think would be the godly person you are directed to, right? Use that excuse with your spouse. I dare you. Well, I, I was told to go to the prostitute. Oh, really? Oh, really you were? I mean, honestly, this is, this is why many of the rabbinic uh, studies over time have tried to make prostitute or harlot into innkeeper. But it's not that. It's not innkeeper. It's prostitute. You see, we have a tendency to naturally segregate and separate from those that are different than us. We have a natural tendency to try to... Mm, but not these spies, not what God is doing. He brings them to Rahab, the prostitute. Let me give you an example of this idea of a tendency to separate and segregate and try to not be a part of and forget that God's redemptive plan is to all people. This is a natural occurrence that happens actually today and which is happening. And I found out about it and I was like, are you kidding me? I didn't even know this thing still exists. Um, it's found in the public school system. A, a lot of strategies have been used today to help schools raise underperforming schools, you know, their scores and stuff. Like, we'll put a great magnet program here. We'll really get to go into focus on literacy. We're going to start an early college high school in which kids will earn college credits in high school. We're going to improve teacher quality. We're going to replace the principal or do some testing. And there's all this talk and there's all this stuff. And, and really, it's like, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. And there's these conversations are, are district to district, state to state. It's the most common thing. Now I'm talking about public schools here because I know we have some private schools being represented, so that's cool. But, uh, but this is more of the public school system. Um, and, and, and what's interesting is the simple fact is that these strategies, strategies never truly work. The bad schools never caught up with the good schools. And the crazy thing is that the bad schools were mostly black and Hispanic. The good schools were mostly white. Now, there might be a principal here or a charter school there who might do a good job improving students' scores individually, maybe in that one, but not in the total. They were just improving the students' test scores. The minority kids in the programs were still not performing on par with the white kids. They hadn't closed the achievement gap between the races. The crazy thing is here, they've actually found a fix for this, and it's proven scientifically. And it cuts it in half by 50%. I mean, it's a ridiculous fix. It's not just like 5% improvement. We're talking 50% improvement. What is this thing that's the magic bullet? Integration. Integration. Simple Brown versus Board of Education integration. Get black people with white people. Get Hispanic people with white people. What, just integrate. It's amazing to me. What the statistics show is that 19, in 1971, which is where the nation really started doing massive desegregation, in 1988, which was the peak of integration in the United States, this is exactly what happened. The learning gap was reduced to almost half. Half! So why is this still a thing? One of the craziest things I heard was from the White House when they were asked why in their rollout of Race to the Top they didn't have an integration diversity plan in it this, this is the first thing that Arne Duncan said, Secretary of Education. He said, it, would, it wouldn't have been able to pass Congress. 2015, people, and we still have majority of the failing schools all one race. There's no integration. It's separation. It's segregation. And it's happening. And, and, and here we have the Secretary of Education who says, I can't get it passed. Why? It would never fly in Congress. It already flew. It's a law. We're not supposed to have this. But you can't pass it in Congress. 
So what he says is, besides, we're doing a ton of stuff to help those students in particular. We put five billion extra dollars into schools and the lowest performing schools, and those tend to be high poverty segregated schools. We're trying to focus on improving teachers and schools, improving quality in the schools, and, and, and we're, we're, we're making sure that they're, they're, they're separate, but they're equal. He didn't say separate equal, but that's what he literally said. Wait a minute, that was struck down in the 1800s, separate but equal. He goes on to say, we do have some high poverty schools now. There are 90% graduation rates, 95% graduation rates, and 90%, of course, that's like one or two out of the majority. Now we do not have enough. We have a long way to go. There are many places where there are huge inequities in resources, and federal money can't begin to make up for the fact that so much of the public schools is locally funded by property taxes which is inherently in many places unfair and equal, and I would say un-American, but you've seen massive influxes of literally, literally, uh, literally a couple million dollars per school in many of these places. Again, he just goes on to say we're trying to make it separate but equal. We're not focusing on breaking up segregation. We're focused on bringing those schools up to par. That's what he's saying. I don't know about any other interpretation you can have but separate but equal. Because people naturally segregate and separate because even though God is not, is not a person who says this one over that one, God is not, I mean, he's an, he's an inclusive God. Jesus came to all people. He has a redemptive plan to all people. We have a tendency to go, but not that person. I'm going to live over here with my people. I'm going to go to school with my people. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's going to step separate. And by the way, you want to go to one of the most segregated places in America? Sunday morning at church. This is abhorrent to me. Now, I understand. I'm not trying to knock it, but we've got white churches. We've got Mexican churches. We've got Puerto Rican churches. We've got black churches. We've got Japanese churches. We've got Hmong churches. By the way, we have old churches. We have hipster churches. We have young churches. We have. You see, though, it's this homogeneous aspect of putting everybody who's the same together. And what a shame that is, because by the way, we're going to get the biggest wake-up call of our life when we die and go to heaven, and we see that people speak Chinese right next to us. And we're all praising God. And there's no separation. This is why I love our church. Can I just brag here? I feel we have a very non-homogeneous church. We are not the same. I love that. I mean, we, we've got black, we've got white, we've got Hispanic, we've got rich, we've got poor, we've got... I mean, it's a conglomeration, baby, and I love it. I love it. Because to me, that represents the community we're trying to reach. And, and I'll tell you, the health of a church is not based on how many. It's, 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 it's largely based on the diversity of the sinners inside. And I'd lo- I love the fact that we got a bunch of sinners here that are saved by Jesus. And I'm one of them. One church, God's redemptive plan to all. And and can I just plug in here really quick, our grow gathering. The reason I love it is because I sit at a table with people I probably normally would never sit with. And and, and I don't mean that in a a negative way. I don't mean that, I don't like those people. It's just, it's, it's not something we normally do. And when we get together, we have all these tables and we can sit with all the people and I get to know everybody. And that's also an opportunity for you to grow in faith together and get to know the person around you. And actually find Jesus in the person that you would normally never associate with. And you know what's even better? And let me just say, we're inviting the junior high and the high school into that situation with us. If you are a high schooler, 
don't miss this. If you're a junior hire, don't miss this. If you have a kid at home, don't let them miss this. Because there's an opportunity to not have two tables anymore. No, this is the adult table. That's the kid table. Fooey with that. Fooey with that. I'm tired of that stuff. Because you know what? The truth is, these kids need to see not just their peers and deal with their peers continually. They need to see the elders. They need to see you and me and struggle alongside with, and we can come alongside and put our arm around and say, I know what it's like. I've been there. I was a junior hire. Ugh. You know what I mean? And they can sit and we can grow together. We can help each other. I'm sorry, I'm going I'm to be on the soapbox for the rest of my life. I really believe, because I would not be here today if I didn't have people in my church who were older than me who said, there's a crazy kid, I want to help him. And I sat with these guys who were way smarter than me and older than me, a lot older than me. And they put their arm around me and they said, Chris, I see something in you. And I was like, really? I don't see anything in myself. I'm a punk. <laughs> but you know what? That's what we mean when God has a redemptive plan for all people. Uh, Question. Who are the people in your life that God is calling you to? Are you finding out that your day or calendar is filled with people that you naturally want to hang out with? Or is, is your schedule and time and life submitted to a God who wants to take you out of your comfort zone and go to all people? That's my hope. Next. Fearless living means we don't give into pressure of the present. We don't give into the pressure of the present moment, but look to the future of our hope in God. See, the king of Jericho was told, look, look, there's Israelites. They got it. They know. I mean, he's the king. They've got their intel. They know that the Israelites are sitting out there in that camp and and they know that the Israelites have sent some people in and they're in the town. And, And so he goes to Rahab and you talk about pressure. In your present moment, Rahab is talking with emissaries of the king. Judge, jury, and executioner, baby. (laughs) We're not talking like, you know, like, oh, I might get a ticket. (laughs) Oh, this will make my life a little tough for like, you know, a day or... No, you're going to lose your life. This is pressure. This is a present moment that literally can, can define your entire existence. And she faces it with a future hope. Of God. There's always going to come a time in your life when the pressure of the present forces you to give in or to seek the future hope you have in Jesus. See, Adam and Eve were pressured at their present moment with the snake. They They were pressured in the garden. And they gave in. Saul, the first king of Israel, was pressured in his present moment of of dealing with the people and what the people wanted. And instead of listening to the future hope of God and what he'd said, he, he went with the people and he fell. Uh, can, I, and can I just add this? I'm going to bring in a little metaphor here. But I, I believe the kings of this world have a tendency to barge into our homes in, in, in the most unlikely of times. And demand of us in our present moment that we deny God and do what we want or what they want. Um, let me give you an example. Maybe it's just the king of self that tries to barge its way into your home and is constantly screaming at you about you and your happiness and what you deserve. And your present moment is filled with this king telling you, you need to get what you need to get right now. And, and, and who cares about anything else? Because you need to be happy. Or maybe it's the king of greed that's saying, uh, you know, 
you need to keep up with the Joneses. And you need to have, and did you know you don't have that new iPhone yet? What's wrong with you? You might as well die. Because you don't got the new iPhone. Or maybe it's that pressure of the present moment of saying, do you really need to claim that on your taxes? I mean, it's the government after all. You see, the, the, the kings have a tendency to barge their way in and then the pressure of the moment really make us choose in that crossroads moment. Are we going to follow the future hope of God or are we going to choose what we want or what's easy in that present moment? What is your choice this week? Where, where are you feeling the pressure to fold and bend instead of standing strong in God's future hope? Rahab stood and she did what God was directing so that his future hope can be played out in her. I, mean, I love Hebrews 11 because it's the, it's the chapter of faith. And we see the heroes of faith in chapter 11. And she's counted, by the way, redemptive plan for all people, a prostitute, and she's in the chapter of faith. Uh, speak for my Jewish brothers and sisters. Oy vey, I'd be so lucky to be in the chapter of faith. Rahab. Why? Because she looked to the future hope of God. And, and in the beginning of that chapter, the, the, the author of Hebrews 11, he says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for. That future hope in God, not the present pressure of the moment, but the future hope for our assurance about what we do not see. Because we're looking forward. Faith is not caving into the pressure of the present, but looking forward to the hope, the future hope in Jesus. Which brings us to our last point. When you are fearlessly following God, people pay attention. I, I love that whole thing. Before the, the, the spies lay down for the night, she comes in and says, by the way, I just want to let you know, everybody is seeing God right now. And they're freaked out. Everybody is seeing God. Like the whole town, the war is already won. It's already won. They literally just have to show up and everyone's going to be like, oh, you know, because they're scared of them. They're melting. It says, are melting in fear because of you. And she finishes it off with says, Lord, your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Everybody is seeing that, but I see that. She's paying attention. She goes from a woman of no faith to a woman of faith in the annals of the heroes of faith. The truth is people are paying attention to your life as well. Are you showing them a life filled, filled with trusting and moving faith? Like faith with, that has those actions that doesn't just say, I'm going to clean the room. I'm going to, I'm at, you do it. You walk out and say, what, what next, God? Here I am. Use me. What next? I know, um, I know. I've used this guy as an analogy a lot, but I just, I just think it's great, and I'm going to use it again. So sue me, okay? Um, but, but Louis Zamperini, what, what a testimony! What, what a life that people have paid attention to. It's just so inspiring, his life that was filled with fear, but God used it and, and, and out of forgiveness and trust in the person and the plan of God became a man who was fearless in his life, and lived a fearless life. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, I recommend it, Unbroken, but after a near-fatal plane crash in World War II, he spent a harrowing 47 days adrift in the Pacific Ocean on a little raft. I mean, they were drinking the blood from um, sharks that they would catch 
like ridiculous. They were so dying of hunger and thirst. And, and they're adrift for 47 days. Uh, one of who died, there was three of them, one died. And, and before he's rescued, he, um, he's actually rescued by the enemy. A Japanese, if that's not bad enough, 47 days, he's rescued by the Japanese Navy. They then sent him to Kwajalein, which was known as Execution Island. Like, you don't want to go to a place called Execution Island, right? That's not Club Med. You know what I mean? It's an Execution Island. So he's sent there, and the reason they named that, because no one ever came off that island alive. And he's there for years and years and years, and picked on unmercilessly. I mean, just picked on like nobody else by one of the main guys named the bird who just goes at him. I mean, just days of beating him constantly until he would, he would literally be knocked out, forcing him to do things that no person should ever have to go through. And when he came back, he was so filled with hatred and fear. He was an addict on alcohol. His marriage was falling apart. But, but this is the part of the movie you don't see, and I want to show this clip to you because I really believe... That, that he was listening to God eventually. And he said, don't just think about cleaning the room. Don't just read books about it. Do it. And he started to do it. And his life was awesome. So I just want to show this real quick. Go ahead and take a look at this. Went through some terrible years where he was destroying his marriage. But Louis was saved by his wife's insistence that he go to see a sermon by Billy Graham, who at that time was a very young man, not very well known, but he was speaking in Los Angeles. Louis didn't want to go, but his wife was going to leave him. And he agreed on that basis to go see him speak. And he sat in the back of the audience and he was unhappy and he was sullen, but Graham spoke of things that resonated with Louis, with his experience about how God reaches into people's lives and helps them get through things that seem unsurvivable. I think all the prisoners have basically made the same prayer. Get me home alive to my family, God, and I'll seek you, I'll serve you. And you make promises while you're under a dire situation. But uh, how many of them keep their promise? I didn't. And so my life fell apart. And it was at that moment that he made this realization to, to himself that he thought God had actually helped him through this and he owed God something and he realized what he needed to do. So I went forward in the meeting and made my confession of faith in Christ and I couldn't believe what happened. While I was still on my knees, my life changed in a matter of moments because I knew I was through getting drunk and I knew that I forgave my guards and I knew it was a miracle because I forgave the bird and, and that was the first night the first night in two and a half years I didn't have a nightmare and I haven't had one since and Louis realized that God can forgive him for all the rotten things he did in his life that he ought to be able to forgive those that had done him wrong. So forgiving the guards and the bird uh, was actually salvation for him. It really turned him around in an instant. He decided he needed to test his forgiveness to see if he really had truly achieved it. And he went back to Japan to meet the guards who had, who had abused him so terribly. 
and he went to Sagama prison where they were all being held for war crimes. He went to every single one and looked him in the eye and told him that he forgave him for mm -hmm. the treatment that he received when he was a prisoner of war. He felt no animosity. He just felt compassion and they couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. It was, it was a wonderful experience. He knew he had truly forgiven them. I think it's incredible that he forgave them. That's a lesson that he taught my father and me. By hating somebody, I'm not hurting them. I'm only hurting myself. You can forgive anybody. Forgiveness is always possible. What they don't say is he continued to go back and was literally a missionary in Japan to the people that caused him so much pain, so much fear. Why? <laughs> he lived out his faith, regardless of the consequences. God told him to clean the room. He did it. Through the power of the Spirit. And I know, I know there are things in your life People are paying attention to you. Louis lived out his faith regardless of the consequences. Let me just say, if you're a student, God is calling you to a fearless life. Living out your faith regardless of the consequences. To be the one who stops the separation and joins him. To goes to the outcast, the least, the last, and the lost. Will, will you seek him at school where people are paying attention? God is calling you today to live out your faith regardless of the consequences at work. To stop making work that He has given you about you and start glorifying Him. You stop trying to be employee of the month and help others to be the employee of the month. <laughs> stop trying to step on others to get to the top as you lift up others to get to the top. You start doing nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, but consider others as more important than yourself. Uh, honestly, one of the biggest detriments to the church today, one of the biggest problems that the church today has is that Christians don't live as Christians. I guarantee you, you start cleaning that room, you start living as God has called you to live, people are going to pay attention your world is going to be changed and people's lives are going to be changed. Parents, your kids are paying attention. If your life is about comfort and ease and getting what you can while you can, then your kids will be too. Because believe me, they're paying attention. It always starts with you. If you will set the example of living your faith out regardless of the consequences, I guarantee your family will see it and lives will change. By the way, Rahab... Great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Jesus welcomed Rahab into eternity and said, Grandma, a prostitute, a sinner, just like me. Jesus has got big arms. And he's got a plan for you. Will you follow him? Let's pray. Lord, I love the fact that you call us to something bigger than us. You call us to something huge. We can't do it on our own. Just like Louis Zamperini. I mean, the fact that he was called to go back to Japan and deal with the people that beat him and treated him in such a way where he couldn't even sleep for two and a half years without a nightmare. 
It's almost sadistic if it wasn't so perfect because you changed him from the inside out and you led a revolution of forgiveness as you showed him the redemption you had for all people even those that tortured and hurt him lord i know as i stand here there are people in the that, that my brothers and sisters that are here today that are dealing with things struggling with things they got walls bigger than jericho in front of them but you're calling them to live out their faith to seek you the person and plan of god lord i just pray today that that we would as a church family draw close to you and lift each other up so that your will would be done here as it is in heaven may you continue to work in such a way that that community outside is so affected by your love and your truth people drop to their knees and say it's not about me it's about god lord i thank you so we just commit our time to you here we thank you for the fact that what you're doing and lord i just want to say right now that uh, uh, i love you and i thank you for who you are and what you've done in my own life So Lord, I just pray that if there are people here that need help or need prayer that they would stick around afterwards and we could pray for them and help them. In Jesus name we ask these things.